Blog Talk Radio. Here he is, folks. Sean Comer, how you doing, sir? 
Well, I'm not square like Enix, but I bring the heat from Phoenix. CEO of the 480 and CCLLC, like I told you Sunday, careful with that mic, Wheezy. So tell me, when you took the practice scholastic aptitude test, did you know the answers, or did you just guess? You rely on gimmicks to amuse your fans and act all urban to jack up your sound scan? What's the matter with you? How come you rhyme monosyllabically? Is atrophy shrinking your entire vocabulary? Your style's like garbage cans meant to be taken out on a weekly basis. Ever since your first record, you've been in a state of suspended animation. It looked like Snuffleupagus and Ophelopithecus, me cray you abacus. But enough about you. Let's talk about me and how you single hand, how single handedly I, re- I redefine the science of radio astronomy, making Nobel Prize winners question their notions of reality. Over I digress. You play sorry, I play chess. Kings pawn to B three. Check me. Go get some Percocets. <laughs> Damn it! Damn it! Careful with that mic, Sean Comer. Robert Cooper, don't ever dare me. <laughs> How's it going, buddy? <laughs> Stumbling across that one fucking line. <laughs> it's not easy, is it, man? Neil Fallon is a talent and a half. God damn. You know, actually, though, as I told you before we came on the air, for having heard this song exactly once and having no beat to rhyme over, yeah, yeah, I'll actually give myself a pass on that. <laughs> oh, man, I'm, I'm walking on sunshine, Marcus. All right. Well, you know what? That was no battle rap as brought to you by Jeremy Lambert and Stuart Lang, but I'll take it because I love Clutch, and I love you, Sean Comer. But I'll tell you who I love just a little bit more. We don't get to see him very often because he's busy in the man cave, and he hardly ever writes for 401 anymore. He just kind of gets in, hits you with a chair, and then runs out of the ring again. He is the cerebral assassin. He is Samer Cotty. How you doing, sir? Quite nervous, actually. And this is probably my first ever non-MMA podcast, and I'm used to feeling fairly confident about my abilities to break down fights, but now I'm talking about serious business, movies, not people hitting each other in the face, where, you know, something that actually requires skills, acting, and I quite don't know what to make of that. I don't know if I'm going to stumble all over the place more than Sean did with that rhyming thing he was doing there. I quite don't know. I, I I just hope I pull through. You'll be just fine. We had Jeff Harris on the show once. It'll be you'll be just fine, sir. Uh, you're oh, in good hands this is here. a measuring stick. Yeah, I, yeah you, you know, you, Jeff, Jeff Harris is kind of like he is our he's our Mike Adamley standard for guests. Um, but uh, Samra, it's an honor to have you on because, folks, Samra is the guy who, whether you love me or hate me, he's one of the two guys largely responsible for me being on 411 Mania because. Some of you might remember that I actually started out as just an occasional guest on uh, um, the Man Cave podcast because he and Jeremy were big fans of my video game writing. And, in fact, that was what they got me on for in the first place, was to talk gaming with them. And that led to me doing a few more shows and a few more shows. And then, eventually, uh, we got on 411 Mania. And at one point, I just kind of broached the idea of, hey, do you guys mind if I write for you? So, but I mean, would have never happened if Samer would have never chatted me up on Twitter one day and said, "Hey, you know, we didn't mean to get you on the show for a while. Would you be interested in that?" So, uh, honored to have you on for that. What a family we are. Yes, we are. <laughs> it is actually quite flattering to hear Sean say that. So, I'll just go ahead and take the credit he's given me and thank him for it. Well, All right. you, yeah, yeah, you deserve it. You absolutely deserve it. But. Uh, all right, so before one of us gets cut, get cut across the eyebrow in the suite, say we can't fight, let's get on with this shindig, shall we? Now listen, back in 1989, 
back uh, eighty eight really. Uh, Tim Burton was called upon by Warner Brothers to helm a franchise that had. It's part of American mythology, um, as many comic book heroes are. Um, but pa- Batman, in particular, while well known and iconic, had taken a ride into the ditch. Now, as legend has it, there were two periods that really hurt Batman as an icon. Uh, and I'm going to let Sean speak to this in just a little bit, but I'll just give you a kind of a frame of reference of where we're going with this. Batman, in the comic book, uh, kind of flip-flop between serious tones and then not-so-serious tones, and there was a period there where Batman kind of went, the comic book kind of went off the cliff as the um, Comic Code Association was demanding, boy, this, this sounds familiar to wrestling fans, family-friendly entertainment, and so Batman was fighting space aliens and such, um, and people sort of walked away from the comic book. It wasn't until Frank Miller, years later, would revitalize the icon with his dark portrayal of uh, future Batman in The Dark Knight Returns, one of the best... My father and I don't agree on much. You know, he's a liberal, I'm not. But we can agree on one thing. Dark Knight Returns, one of the best graphic novels ever written. The uh, one, one of the best. Um, hang on, hang on. Let me, let me talk about the, 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 how we got from the 60s to the film, and then I'm going to throw it to you. Um, the other thing to remember is that Batman also suffered on the screen. Uh, while it enjoyed a brief success with the 60s campy Adam West television show, and God knows if you were a kid who used to watch that in syndication, you loved it, I'm sure. I know I did. But it also, like, killed Batman <laughs> for a while. And when they thought about doing a film, there was some consideration in bringing back a um, a darker Batman, and so they got Tim Burton to helmet, and then we got the 1989 release. Now, Sean, why don't you give us a little bit of backstory here uh, on Batman, and um, so we we move on into what this film actually was. Okay. Well, first off, I want to apologize for that brief hem and haw there, because actually, when you mentioned the Dark Knight Returns, I actually got my Frank Miller Dark Knight graphic novels mixed up. And for some reason, that triggered my thoughts of the big, gigundo mess that was The Dark Knight Strikes Again and a lot of other Frank Miller stories, because Frank goes off the rails pretty easily. <laughs> um, no, the, the, the very first one, The Dark Knight Returns. Uh, right, right. And now, that I, and now that I remember which one you're, talk, which one you're talking about, um, I, I would agree with that. Um, in my opinion, I personally think that it was Batman Year One that was every bit as instrumental as The Dark Knight Returns. We can talk about that on another show, perhaps. Um, the period you're talking about is, comics-wise, what's known as uh, the Silver Age, and I hope I, I hope I've got the Silver Age, the Silver Age Golden Age difference right. Um, and you're right. The, the fact was that because of the comics code, you couldn't really give Batman the deep, dark, psychologically affected character portrayal that a lot of the later adaptations have. And you did end up with a lot of, frankly, very silly, nonsensical stories, but they were working with the best that they had. And the offshoot of that was the super campy 60s TV show. Um, If you are anywhere near my age or Robert's, you remember that clear as day. I remember when I was when I was but a wee geek 
growing up back in Spring Lake Park, Minnesota, um, watching the reruns on KITN Channel 29 until I could recite just about every episode verbatim. Um, and that really... And this, and, and this was in the years following the turn in the 80s and early 90s toward what Batman has kind of become nowadays in most media. And and it was very campy. It was goofy. And for the longest time prior to 1989, yeah, what everybody associated with Batman was, you know, the sixth show. To to the point that my mother-in-law on Easter Sunday actually said out loud in front of my father and I, who have been collecting comics since both of us were wee children, Adam West is by far the best Batman ever on screen. And it was this woman's house, so we didn't didn't just flip the table over and knock the and knock over the Easter ham. We just kept that yeah. to ourselves. But oy. you know, and, and yeah, you're right. And and that's the Batman she knows. She knows the very the very sterilized, stodgy Boy Scout Batman. Um, the the not very the not very angry one, and Burt Ward as as Robin. Um, the Dick Grayson Robin, obviously, since I was you know. The Robin of that time, you know, Jason Todd was not yet even a glint in someone's eye, let alone Tim Drake. Um, but I mean, up to that point, nobody had really tackled a darker Batman. And the good news is, Tim Burton, up to up to a certain point in his career, did dark very well. He was the right guy to helm this. Unfortunately as I'm going to probably point out repeatedly throughout this podcast, in a way, he was also the wrong guy because, as he pointed out at one point, as he said publicly, and as he's been quoted as saying, he never liked comic books. I'm going to, I'm going to put you on pause there, Sean. Let me, let me, because a couple of things. Yeah, thank you. Cut, cut me off before I get off on a rant there. <laughs> a couple of things. One, um, I want to go over to Samer uh, and kind of bring him in on the discussion, but let me, let me say this. I think there's a debate to be had over Tim Burton's line about not reading comic books. Because here's the thing, and this is going to be sort of a central theme throughout this podcast um, that we're doing tonight, and then the one, one that we're going to do in two weeks where we tackle the Joel Schumacher years, or as I like to call them, the yuck years. And that is, children's fare doesn't have to be retarded. Okay, you can make um, you can you can take a comic book character, and comic books are generally written for children. Um, maybe nowadays you can you could argue they're just as much written for adults. But I think the the initial thought about comic books, um, books, not 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 comic strips for the newspaper, comic books, was this is geared towards kids. But the idea that everything for kids has to be dumb and dumbed down and saccharine and ridiculous is false. Also, the idea that you have to be the biggest comic book, you know, the, the biggest comic book nerd with the lisp and everything else, there's a debate to be had over whether or not that's valuable when you're making a movie. Are fresh eyes on a product better or not in, in certain cases like this? And I think that's why Batman makes such a good study, especially under the helm of Tim Burton. Let me go over to Samer Cotty for just a moment, who's been quietly waiting to get in this uh, discussion. Samer, what brought you to Batman? As we, as we begin to talk about this film, um came out in 1989, 
not sure how you came to Mint. So tell us a little bit about that and what you uh, what made you excited to talk about this tonight. Well, I mean, when the film first came out, I was one. So <laughs> let's just say I didn't watch it at the time. And you know, unlike pretty much all of you, I didn't grow up in North. I didn't grow up in North America. I grew up in Lebanon, where you know. We've heard of Batman, we knew what Batman was, but our access to DC Comics when I was like five or six was limited to say the absolute least. So unlike Sean, back in the day, I wasn't quite the comic book nerd. And and still to this day, I've actually, I'll, I'll shamelessly admit, I haven't read a ton of Batman comics. Despite uh, that, however, uh, I ran across a cartoon movie Call a Batman uh, adaptation called The Mask of the Phantasm, or maybe it was Phantasm of the Mask, which was absolutely phenomenal. I mean, even after all these years, after watching every single adaptation of Batman on screen, this remains, obviously, with the Nolan trilogy, my favorite film adaptation of Batman ever. It was a fantastic movie. Truly. And it left a deep impression because, you know, being a kid used to, as you just said, cartoony, dumbed-down stuff, this struck me as fairly serious. And I was familiar with Superman and other superheroes, and it was mainly, you know how they were kind of designed, you know, how how kids were targeted, you know, they were pretty much dumbed down. Batman always struck me as, you know, this dark, mysterious figure, which, you know, obviously is probably his main appeal, which is why he's pretty much the most popular icon as far as um, superheroes are concerned. And when I watched that movie, it really just, it remains to this day a favorite of mine. So it really got me just attracted to the idea of Batman, and I started trying to learn more. Um, And actually, it wasn't until maybe the late... um, maybe late 1999 that I first watched um, the first Tim Burton movie. And again, I loved it because as you said, I was I was used to watching the stupid Batman Robin series. Um, it was really, every, every adaptation of Batman was awful. I was actually unfortunate enough, my first exposure to Hollywood Batman movie was Batman and Robin as well. So, <laughs> Good gravy. You know, I mean... Yeah, so by comparison, watching the first Batman movie, uh, the Tim Burton one, it was I was I was pleasantly surprised. And yes, maybe the movie hasn't aged well these days, but I am somewhat of a Tim Burton fan. And as I actually watched his other work throughout his career, um, rewatching those two movies, both Batman and Batman Returns, after being familiar with Tim Burton's style, I've actually grown to appreciate it even more. It's sort of like watching a Tarantino movie for the first time. If you're not familiar with Tarantino and what he does, I don't think you could actually enjoy it if you're expecting something serious. Sure, Inglorious Passes is a rough movie if you're not already used to a Tarantino movie. Absolutely, absolutely. So, knowing what to expect then, um, it really... it struck me as a refreshing change of pace from every other Batman movie adaptation. And more than that, I'm a Jack Nicholson fan, probably one of my favorite actors of all time. And I thought his portrayal of the Joker was fantastic. Unlike a lot of my generations, I actually saw Nicholson's portrayal of the Joker first. 
other than, you know, as opposed to seeing Heath Ledger playing it and then just mindlessly compare the two for no reason whatsoever. So, No, my favorites are the comparisons to Cesar Romero. <laughs> All the better. <laughs> All the um, better. Let, let, me, let me just interject something. Uh, but I, I'm glad to hear you bring up Mask of the Phantasm because, in my opinion, that and um, Batman Beyond Return of the Joker are far and away the two best animated Batman movies that have been made to date. Um, Under the Red Hood being a, being a very close third, being very good, but I simply can't count that up there because it's, it doesn't have Mark Hamill as the Joker or Kevin Conroy as Batman. But um, really, you hit so perfectly on why the, the animated vision of Batman that... Um, Bruce Timm and Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill all combined um, came to to symbolize and became icons of why that's so good. Because it is moody. It is as dark as the very best Batman swords. But it's still just safe enough that, you know, someone who was Sammer's age when Sammer first saw it can watch it and still get it and not be guard or taken aback by it, and in addition to all that, it's also, Mark, as you pointed out, it's not dumbed down too much for kids. It's no, I think, the, I think the impression that Hollywood seems to have of children is there, um, and maybe this is because of certain parent groups, you know, uh, the PTC and, or whatever the, name, the initials are, but, you know, b- basically the Marge Simpson types who think their children are Fabergé eggs. And right. if you expose them to any degree of violence or conflict or plot, they will uh, they, they will break into a million pieces, and that's just not the case. Studies have even shown that you know that toddlers, my daughter's age, can follow something as long as it's got a cohesive plot to it. Right. So, well, you know, and, which is and all and I ask talk, out of Hollywood. Well, and if you want to talk about versatility and being really on just on just the right extent, both sides of that line. You have to look at the fact that those three have also been involved in. Well, see, well, <laughs> forgive me, my memory's kind of kind of flagging on me. I'm not sure how much Bruce Tim was really involved in uh, the two Arkham games so far, but Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill definitely were, and they fit perfectly. They absolutely like putting on a pair of gloves. Those two with this franchise, um, it really is. It really has been the ideal balance up to this point of being just just sanitized, just safe enough for the kids, but just shadowy enough to stand out and still be interesting to them while still being intriguing to adult audiences even all these years later because it really stands up pretty damn well. Yep, there are limitations in the movie, but I think the limitations make it charming as opposed to make it silly. Um, I think that watching it again, now, for people who have never heard The Long Road to Ruin before, but were interested in listening to this podcast because we were talking about Batman, uh, The Long Road to Ruin is not like a lot of the other uh, online review series you might see from, name any one of them, but (laughs) uh, even even our good friend Jeremy Lambert. We don't do a plot-by-plot-by-plot-point synopsis of the movie. We talk about themes and elements on this show. So we might be a little all over the place. And then, you know, in, in, in cases of having to talk about the plot, I might have to describe some things. But this is not a plot by plot by plot dissection of a movie, um, not, not in that respect. So I do want to talk a little bit about 
the casting decisions for this movie. They they made some very interesting choices. Uh, let's talk about the about the first one, the one that threw everybody for a loop back in 1988. Michael Keaton, who as a kid I got him confused with Michael J. Fox because Michael J. Fox's character on Family Ties was Alex P. Keaton. Keaton. Don't laugh at me. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. So I heard Michael Keaton was going to be Batman, and I'm just like, the short guy from Family Ties? Why? And I'm like, wait a minute, wrong guy. <laughs> but, you know, this might as well have been your reaction, because if you know, if I was your age back then, I probably would have wondered why, even knowing fully well who Mike Keaton was. So. Sure. And I think like at that, that at that point most people had known him for his comedy stuff. Though and and, and I want to start off with Michael about in defense of Michael Keaton this way. No, obviously at, you know, so many years later and even in in the wake of the picture, people realized Michael Keaton was an awesome choice for Batman. I don't yeah. think there's anybody here that would disagree. But um if anybody was worried that Michael Keaton was going to mishandle the part, all you had to have seen was his performance in Clean and Sober. Clean and Sober is by far and away one of my favorite movies, and not just because I've spent the last decade of my life uh, in the uh, addiction and therapy field, but it's just a well-acted flick about exactly what the title tells you it's about. It's about addiction. But Michael Keaton, it, it's one of those... We were talking about this um, with Johnny Depp and uh, Jim Carrey. When Jim Carrey gets into a dramatic role, I think he absolutely shows his acting chops. It's when he does comedy that he seems to fall off off the wagon for me. Uh, Michael Keaton, very similar. He very limited in range in his comedy. Gets a dramatic part, a part where he actually has to act, and by golly, he the man can act. And so what he brought to Batman, this is where I'm going to let you guys in on it, what he brings to Batman in Tim Burton's adaptation of the iconic figure is... Not the bang bang shoot 'em up, you know, a million and one gadgets, or the aggressive growling into, you know, into a microphone that uh, what's his face and the Nolan flick does. Though I'm not complaining about him, it's just Christian different. Bale. Thank you, Christian Bale. It's just a different portrayal. Batman struggles with his identity as the Caped Crusader. In the you know in, in places where the comic book actually dealt with this, this was his internal struggle. It was being haunted by the death of his by the murder of his parents right up in front of him when he was a child, and f- feeling compelled with all of his resources to do the thing that the police couldn't do, and just being compelled, being haunted, being conflicted about it because he had this other life that he was living and was expected to live. And what's great about the Keaton portrayal, and maybe what gets lost on some kids, it's kind of the conversation about which was the better lightsaber fight, the one in uh, A New Hope or the one in um, The Phantom Menace, is not. sometimes kids have a little bit of a hard, hard time with actors staying still in front of a camera and acting. But as an adult, as I watched it this past weekend, for, getting ready for this podcast, I was like, wow, he's really brilliant in this role. And that comes, that that to me is what's so compelling about the movie. Forgetting about all the special effects and, and the action sequences, it's Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne struggling with his identity as Batman. Sean, do you see that? What do you think about all this? You know I really think you nailed it. I really do. And I think, if anything, if anybody were to ever question Michael Keaton's acting range, especially if, God help you, you happen to see White Noise, which is one of the worst ex- executions of an awesome concept I've ever seen. Um, quite frankly, all you need to do is just watch two movies and compare them. 
watch Beetlejuice, watch Batman, and remember that same guy. Um, he really does display fine range, and he really was a good choice to play um, a, a haunted, somewhat insecure, sometimes almost downright shy and fearful Bruce Wayne um, in this. And that you really grasp that in that most of the movie, it's really almost more of a Bruce Wayne movie than a Batman movie. I mean, obviously, you've got to have all the scenes in there with Batman and everything, but they made the choice to go with Keaton, I think, in part because the way he looks is he looks like a guy that nobody would ever guess to be Batman. Uh he doesn't really look necessarily like his body's been trained to peak physical condition. It's why I can kind of see how at first it might be a little bit laughable to think of Mr. Mom playing the Cape Crusader <laughs> and, and, and slapping Jack Nicholson around. But I tell you, his portrayal of Johnny Dangerously makes him the perfect action hero. Precisely. But really, when you boil it down and you really sit down and watch it, you find yourself kind of kind of unwittingly sucked effectively into it. And then by the time it's all over, you kind of go, oh, okay, I see what you did there. That definitely works. And in fact, I, I would go so far as to say that it works better than in Batman Forever, Val Kilmer, who looks much more like the prototype of what I think a lot of people would expect Bruce Wayne to look like. Why that was more effective necessarily than Val playing Bruce Wayne. And that's not to discredit Kilmer as an actor. Um, the, Doors is a, the Doors is a great movie. It, it really is. When we, when, when we do the next podcast, we'll tackle all the things that went wrong with Val's performance. Much, you know, I think right. a lot of it was, it was they had already went through a lot of the territory that they were covering in the third movie. So it was like, why are we doing this again? Right. Um, but to, but to kind of put one last, one last point on it, though, you mentioned... The Bale Growl. One thing that I really liked about Keaton's performance that a lot of people might not otherwise notice is the fact that he really toes a pretty fine, a pretty fine line. It really pretty finely tunes that changing voice between when he's in the black costume as Batman and sounding just gruff enough and sounding just maybe a little bit charmingly insecure and kind of charming when he's Bruce when he's Bruce Wayne, but the tone being just a little bit different. It's just different enough that, yeah, you can kind of see how uh, Kim Basinger as Vicki Vale would have been uh, kind of confused and maybe, and maybe a little bit thrown off by it. So... I love... Um, Jack Nicholson, as the Joker, says to... Like says to Bruce Wayne in Vicky Vale's apartment in the, the last part of the second act of the movie, have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? And then he shoots him. Um, and later on in the movie, at the conclusion, uh, you've, you know, you've got a tight camera angle on uh, the Joker and Vicky Vale, and then you hear off camera, 
And the Joker turns around and he looks at him and he says, have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? Bam! <laughs> Punches him right in the face. But I love that line because it was such a deadpan delivery, and it wasn't a growl, and it wasn't a yell, and it wasn't anything. It was just, just a deadpan, back-in-your-face turkey, and it can, couldn't have been delivered better. Can I say just this one thing about that line in general? Sure. That is a line that the way that Jack Nicholson delivers it and how afterwards he basically says, I have no idea what that means. It's just something I say before I kill a man. <laughs> that is a line that the way he delivers it shows that Jack Nicholson got the comic book version of the Joker. We, I have said before, I have said before, I will say it again, and I swear if I ever meet Nash, I owe him a Coke for this for repeating this line so often. Man crazy has no, has no plan. Joker <laughs> crazy has even less of a plan. And that's exactly the point. He goes, he just says it, it doesn't make any sense, and even when asked about it point blank, he doesn't try to make anything up. Just, I don't know. Bang. Sammy, you said something that my father has said. Sammy, you said something that my father has said many, many times about this movie, and it's a line that I like, and I think it's a fair criticism. This wasn't Batman the movie, this was Joker the movie. And you had... You had um, said something very similar to that at the, at the top of the podcast, you had said that they focused so much more on Jack Nicholson than they did Batman for a variety of reasons. Um, what's your take on that? Do you think that that was a good choice by the screenwriters and the director to focus so much on Jack Nicholson and the Joker? You know, Would you have liked to have seen more of Batman? Did you feel like it worked in the movie? And talk to me a little bit about what you thought of Jack Nicholson's portrayal. I actually thought they got the balance quite right. To me, and I'm speaking certainly for myself here, but I think it's safe to assume that part of what's always appealing about Batman is the Bruce Wayne story itself. Bruce Wayne as a person, even you know beyond the mask. And the kind of villains he has to deal with. You know, it's... In any superhero movie, you, you know, as, as, as obvious as this sounds, you, you do need a compelling villain. And we'll, I think we'll all agree they don't come much more compelling than a Joker. But, um, so, to me, what I like the most about the movie, you know, you guys were talking about Keaton, uh, Keaton's performance, and, yeah, I, I thought he absolutely nailed the Bruce Wayne part, even if it's not the preconceived idea it's you know it's not what you'd expect for Bruce Wayne to be like but once you actually see him perform the way he did it makes sense but I also thought it made a ton of sense to kind of put a lot of the focus on the Joker I mean it's it's not it's quite not fair to say he carries the movie or anything like that but Jack Nicholson's performance, I think, on the whole, makes the movie what it what it is. I mean, we're praising Keaton's work and everything, but I don't think we'd be quite as generous about the movie in general had Jack Nicholson not absolutely nailed it. I oh, thought, Jack, you know, Jack's a very chewing son of a bitch in this, and I mean that in the most complimentary fashion. Yeah, absolutely. Keep in mind, he, he is playing the Joker. He's playing the probably the most not probably by far the most popular Batman villain. And while it would sound like, you know, playing the Joker would be hard to screw up, 
that might be the case, but be that as it may, it's also hard to nail it to the extent in which Jack Nicholson did. Because because of the whole Joker, I mean, he's a clown at the end of the day, right? I mean, that's what he is. And staying true to the comic books as much as Nicholson did, while also finding a way to make it work on camera, I don't think is easy. And yet he makes it quite seamlessly. Even before he turned into the Joker, even when he was just Jack Napier, something clicked in him. You could see, I mean, Jack always has, well, talking about Jack Nicholson here, always has that creepy grin that... That shining grin? Right, exactly. You feel if he delivers any line with that grin, it would work, which is why, you know, you guys are just talking about the line he, he says and, you know, goes on to admit that it makes no sense. I think these are the kind of things that probably only Jack Nicholson could pull off. Yes, it it, it, it fits the Joker as a character to say, well, you know, I don't know why I say it just sounds cool before I shoot somebody or it sounds creepy. So, yeah, it works for the Joker as a character, but I think it works more for Jack Nicholson as an actor because he can pull it off. So, yeah, the Joker as a character, who's probably, you know, the perfect villain for Batman, and you have Jack Nicholson as an actor who's the perfect fit for the Joker. It couldn't have worked out any better, I think. And as I said, to me, I know this sounds odd to say, but... The Batman character himself, meaning when Bruce Wayne puts on the mask, we take for granted. You know, we expect the gadgets, we expect the action sequences. So that's always, I feel that's the easy part. The difficult parts are Bruce Wayne and whoever, you know, whatever villain he's actually tangled up with. And I feel in this case, you know, Bruce Bruce Wayne did his part, Michael Heaton did his part as Bruce Wayne, but Jack Nicholson you know, more than did its part. He he completely made that movie. You know, I said earlier that it may not have aged well compared to, you know, if you're expecting a super serious Batman movie, you know, the way the Nolan trilogy is. But Nicholson's performance absolutely holds up. It's it's difficult to describe how such an over-the-top character as a Joker and an over-the-top performance by Nicholson himself could at the same time be believable. I bought it while watching it. If, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, and you know what's funny as you say that? Hang, hang on one second. If you're a director and an actor having a conversation about a scene and the, and, and the actor is looking at the dialogue and the dialogue just doesn't make any sense to him, and the, 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 the actor, a good actor, will turn to the director and say, what's my motivation? If the director turns to you and says, man crazy has no plan, you have to be a hell of an actor to then go with that and go, okay, and then still nail the performance. Because too many times, if you turn to an actor and say, man crazy has no plan, you get Jim Carrey. You know? Okay, here's, here's where I'd like to interject something, though. And, and it's, a little bit, it's a little bit of a history lesson and a little bit of a fun fact about Tim Burton um, that kind of makes... Jack Nicholson's portrayal in this movie both make a little more sense and it makes it all the more admirable. Uh, I told you before that Tim was quoted as saying that he didn't enjoy comic books largely because, as he put it, and this just sounds so silly to me every time I say it, he could never figure out how to read them. He could never figure out which panel you were supposed to read first. Um, but he doesn't dyslexia. But, but, he said the one comic, the one graphic novel that he ever really, really enjoyed was 
the Killing Joke. Now, spoilers for those of you out there who have not read who have not read the book or are not familiar with your Batman lore. This is the book in which the Joker uh, shoots Barbara Gordon. Barbara Gordon through the stomach, through the spine, and ends up paralyzing her. From that point on, she becomes Oracle. He then also kidnaps Jim Gordon and proceeds to really try to psychologically break him. The line from, I, I know I'm going to get the line wrong, the line from, I believe, it's uh, the, dark, the Dark Knight. We have to show him that our way, show him that our way works. Okay, that's from the killing joke as Jim Gordon is pleading with Batman, despite what this monster has done, you can't kill him. Otherwise, you're, otherwise you're no better. The way I see it, the way Nicholson portrays the Joker in this, that's what it always reminds me of, is the Joker in The Killing Joke. And while, yes, I need the joke that man crazy has no, has no plan. And when it comes to that line, yes, that does embody the core of the Joker, but Sometimes he does actually have an have an objective. He's not as as Heath Ledger said in uh, the Dark Knight, always a dog chasing cars. Sometimes there's a mild semblance of an objective there. I think it's in the whole who's handling the Joker. Right. The Joker in and of himself is a is a sinister sociopath. Now, if he's right. a, is he a sinister sociopath who's chaotic evil, that's Nolan's interpretation. Is he right. one? who is able to formulate a plan and, and go after an objective, That what I hear you saying is that was Burton's interpretation. Well, the point more so being is that the Joker, neither in the Nolan version nor in the Burton version, necessarily has a material gain in mind. He just, he'll have a plan, but it's just a plan to just start shit and let it run amok. It's kind of the same thing that tends to happen in uh, in the Arkham video games, it's the same theme you see so often with him in uh, in Batman the animated series. Is just destroy shit, just just be an agent of chaos, as Heath Ledger said. But here, just the mannerisms, the characterization, the delivery, the look of the look of it, the whole mood of the Joker in this. To me, I think it's appropriate that it's so reminiscent of the Killing Joke, and I don't think it's coincidence. I think that was. And, you know, God knows I, it's one of the questions I would love to ask Tim Burton one day. I really think that was probably what he had in mind when he was directing Nicholson that way, was just that vision of the killing joke. Sean, let me ask you a question, and then I want to get Samer's opinion on this. Um, sure. there, there are two problems that this movie has, um, two things that, that, at least for me, sort of detract from it, but I want to get your take on it maybe where this comes from, if it comes from anything at all, and then Samer's just sort of gut reaction to it when he saw it. Um, this interpretation of the Joker is summed up in a line he says to Vicky Vale. He says, I'm an artist, and I make art until people and I make art until people die. Okay. So that's fine. That's also not familiar to me. <laughs> I've never seen any impression of the Joker Cesar Romero, uh, or, you know, or any in the comic book, any graphic novel I've ever read where he portrayed himself as an artist. He was a crook. He was uh, a rapist, a murderer. He did all kinds of horrible things in various interpretations, not once that I ever hear him say. And maybe I'm wrong about this, but I'm asking. Uh, I'm, I'm a, basically a psychotic artist. 
where are they getting that from? Well, I think it's just another way of also phrasing something that he also says in the very same scene, and that is, and Samer, I have not watched this recently, so you have to forgive me if I get this line wrong. I'm the world's first fully functional homicidal maniac. Homicidal artist. Well, was it homicidal right. art? Homicidal maniac. Was it? Uh, well, um, I, mean, I think it was artist, actually. Uh, well, uh, okay, well, it, it was ours. Again, it, it's been a while since I've actually seen them. I remember them fairly well, but there's a line or two that I get wrong every now and then. It's uh, No, that that is very much his definition of himself as kind of stated, made clear a few times in the comics. It, it, changes, so, it changes so often. It, it changes from him being a sociopath to actually having what I've heard described once as a kind of super sanity in which, for as insane and maniacal as his action scene, they actually do make a kind of sense. At, at the very least, to him and only to him. But it's... No, no, I, I think that was... I think that's very much in line. It's a line that's very much in line with how the Joker sees himself. Okay. I, 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 I really think it's somewhat of a limitation, but that also just me, me, my, my own taste. I, you know, I kind of looked at that and went, huh, I'm not, I don't like it. But then again, you know, but I don't have to. And it all, and to me, it also doesn't make the movie bad. Samer, when, when you heard that, when you saw that, either then or now, what was your reaction to it just as, as someone watching the movie? Well, while I didn't think much of it, I mean, uh, when I when I first heard it, I have to say it does come off as a bit forced because it really art in general, or Joker considering himself as an artist, as you said, not through any previous portrayals has this been a theme with the Joker. You know, the artist part. It, I mean, chaotic, sure, homicidal, definitely, and everything else, but. It's. It never struck me as art. I don't. I don't really. This. This almost reminds me of the cliched portrayal of serial killers who kill in very over the top manner and even make rather theatrical crime scenes, and consider you know, in their taunting to the cops or whatever they consider what they do as art. This doesn't really strike me as a Joker. I think he's much more impulsive than that. Um. So, yeah, I have to say the line isn't super consistent with the Joker, but at the same time, even though he did mention it, I think I at least referred to it at more than one moment, it wasn't like this was the main theme, although in his interactions with Vicky Vale, he does go on about it, you know, more than once due to uh, her being a photographer and everything. I guess in some ways it was just a way to kind of explain his, admiration, if you want to call it that, of her work. Um, but, yeah, I would say it is a touch forced. Okay. Um, we don't have a tremendous amount of time, and we still have an, another movie to discuss, so I just want to do some quick hits on some other elements of the movie. The second problem I have with the movie, um, Samer's line about, you know, has it stood up well over time. This is one of those, this 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 particular element is the thing that always jumps out at me as it's charming in its own it's, it was good in its own time it's charming now but it's hard to put that up against 
modern movies, and it's almost not even a fair comparison, and that is Michael Keaton in the Batman suit doing uh, action sequences, specifically the fight scenes. First of all, he's like a penguin, okay? Michael Keaton walking around in that rubber suit, and it was probably because it was a rubber suit, uh, he's just waddling around, and, you know, and, and it's... Uh, I, again, I'll compare it to the lightsaber scene between Ben Kenobi and Darth Vader in A New Hope. A couple of swipes with the sword, and then we're done. You know, it's a couple of you know, a couple of punches, a left, a right, an uppercut, a straight. There we go, and then we're done. <laughs> Lobster. And I can see why, if you're like a kid now, in a couple of years, I'm going to have my daughter sit down and watch this when she has the attention span to sit through a two-hour movie. And you know, and I'll be curious to see what her reactions to it are versus say. What is obviously the worst film in the franchise, but some, but, I'll, but I'll, I'll say it with this caveat. My wife said at the time that she saw it when she was a child, thought it was the best one because it was the most colorful and had the most fun action, uh, action sequences, Batman and Robin. You know, again, Phantom Menace and New Hope. Sometimes it's, it's, it's the age of the person giving the perspective. But, uh, yeah, I, the, the action sequences in this thing, more specifically the fist fights. Not exactly uh, Rocky Balboa here. I mean, you know, Sean, you want to speak to that? I mean, what what can you say? It was like what they worked in. It was 1989. What else were they going to do? You know what? Up to this point, movies rooted in comic books were still very new, and this was really only the second truly great one after the first Superman. Now, up to this point, what we'd had was we were still striking a balance between people who looked the part and people who could act the part. In the first Superman, Christopher Reeve knocked it out. Absolutely still to this day, and I say this only because Man of Steel has not hit theaters and so the jury's still going to be out a little bit, Christopher Reeve is still the quintessential Superman performer. However, unfortunately, what we had also had up to that point, we'd also had to suffer through Rev Brown as Captain America. Um, <laughs> we... Uh, so we had to deal with that. Uh, on TV's The Incredible Hulk, okay, we had Lou Ferrigno as the green guy. However, it's Lou Ferrigno. Um, we had had, I, I forget, had um, had Dolph Lundgren's Punisher come out yet? Uh, I will look that up for you while you continue to explain okay. yourself. Well, around that same time, we got Dolph Lundgren playing the Punisher. Unfortunately, Which was awesome. Unfortunately, that was Dolph Lundgren and not Thomas Jane. It wasn't even Ray Stevenson. It was Dolph Oh, come Lundgren. on, God. For years I've asked you why. Why are the innocent punished and the guilty alive? Sorry, go on. Um, but the, the point being is, no, Burton was making the best of what he had in terms of a guy that was a great Bruce Wayne, but physically... Let's just say he wasn't exactly Hugh Jackman as Wolf as Wolverine, Robert Downey as Iron as Iron Man, or Chris Evans as Captain America, or Tobey Maguire as Spider Man for that matter. He wasn't somebody who could really carry off both ends of it necessarily well. So no, it, it doesn't necessarily stand up great. I would say my bigger problem with it than the fight scenes uh, was the fact that. Uh, Burton got one major thing about Batman wrong, and that was the ending. And that was he basically just more or less killed the Joker. And that is the one thing about Batman is Batman doesn't kill. 
He didn't kill the Joker. The Joker fell. He fell, but he fell because Batman attached a gargoyle to his foot. These things happen. But he did say, I'm going to kill you, by the way. Batman did, when when he grabbed the Joker, he did say, I'm going to kill you, which struck me as a bit out of character. Well, well no, it, it's totally out of character, because so often in the comic books, and even in the in Nolan's version of The Dark Knight, that's one thing no one got right, that Burton got wrong. And it demonstrates why sometimes it is a bad idea to have a guy who doesn't read comics trying to make a comic movie. He didn't understand the fact that in the comics... That's such a big part of those two's interplay is the fact that the Joker is always preying on the fact that he knows that's the one thing Batman will never do and the one thing that will always make sure that the Joker lives to fight another day is the fact that Batman doesn't kill. And hey, let, me, uh, let, let, let me pause you for just one second. Hear me out on this. This isn't a comic book movie in the, in, in the sense that the studio was not necessarily looking to do a comic book movie. They were looking to do a movie, a studio movie with a property that they had that happened to be a comic book. And as studios do, they don't care about source material. They had no idea what this was going to do, because as you pointed out, comic books tended not to sell big movies up until this point. This one starts a whole new era of movies that would come after it. But prior to this, just put yourself in the mind of the studio for just one moment. They're thinking this may not even sell. This thing may flop, and then we're right. you know, and then, it's, then it's back to the drawing well, board. Well, the way it's like, but but here's the one thing to point out though, and here's where I point out the other side of the coin. Yes, Burton got that wrong, but I will still admit it. It worked. It's still as a movie overall. The uh, the the canon fanatic of me that always cringes at that one part aside. It absolutely works almost start to finish. I don't have much of a complaint about anything else they did they did in this movie. Um because it, it's still enjoyable to watch. It's still a compelling story. And it's as I've pointed out before with these with these types of movies, it's a good example of how you can adapt and you can stray, but you have to know just how much just how much you're able to get away with in terms of straying from accepted continuity. And in this case, even though Burton did something that's a little bit questionable, it's it's still good enough that you can overlook that one thing and still realize, okay, this is great. So, I'm, o- overall, yeah, you know what? It, it earns every bit of praise that it gets. Just kind of rounding out this discussion, then we're going to move on to Batman Returns. Do, do you think, it, Samer, that it still works even today as a film that you can show kids? Do you think kids would are, are interested in this sort of thing? Uh, is it does it work for you on the level of this is okay for both kids and adults? It's it's family entertainment, as it were. Given you know, even with all the you know, murder and whatnot. <laughs> well, I think it absolutely does. Really, I think um, you know, given at the end of the day, it, it, it is a Batman movie and kids are interested in Batman, and murder and other sort of violence kind of comes with the territory. So if you're willing to show a kid a Batman movie, then these things should be taken for granted. I do think it works. Um, I really, really do, because I think 
everything, I think the one word, I used it earlier when talking about the Joker and Bruce Wayne, I think balance is a word that strikes me nicely when it comes to this movie. I think, you know, even when it comes to the violence, even when it comes to targeting different age um, intervals, as far as the audience is concerned, there's a certain balance where you and I and Sean could kind of discuss different nuances in the movie, but I do think an eight or nine year old could just watch it as a cool Batman film and, you know, get quick out by the Joker and then be happy that he got what what he deserved at the end. I mean, it's I do think it's a movie that works on various levels. Um, totally sticking with you for a very brief moment and then we're gonna transition. I don't like Tim Burton movies. In fact, um, t- Batman, I think, is like the height of his... Uh, and I've never seen Edward Scissorhands, so you have to forgive me on that one. But the- these last couple of Tim Burton movies, Willy Wonka, Alice in Wonderland, I've hated most of everything Tim Burton does. But I'll tell you what, the man's got a style. If you just never... If you, know, if you didn't tell me who was directing a movie and just showed me uh, a movie, I could tell you that's Tim Burton based on set design, based on tone, um, if Helen Bonham Carter is in it. Just just kidding. But um, <laughs> Danny but Elfman the, did the score. It's, it's Danny Elfman scoring the thing. But can, same we, can, can we point out just very briefly that it, it floors me to absolutely no end that the guy from Oingo Boingo has scored <laughs> both two Batman movies and Hot to Trot. That just goes to show you that there was awesome talent in the 80s and terrible bands. Terrible bands and terrible Bobcat Goldthwait movies with talking horses. <laughs> but what I was getting to was, from, from, an art, from an artist's point of view, um, Tim Burton, I think, adds an interesting quality to movies that just, you know, strictly from a, from a visual standpoint, his movies are interesting to look at. In terms of this Batman movie, uh, added to the movie or distracted from it because the thing looked like Art Deco? Your opinion, Samer? I do think it worked well. I think given what he was offering, given if, if you strictly limit this to Burton's vision, and I agree, I think, uh, even though I am a Burton fan, I think, you know, you just alluded to his more recent work, I do think he's kind of become redundant. And I'd be lying if I said I enjoyed his last couple of movies. Uh, namely, Alice in Wonderland, I'd say, was a huge, huge disappointment. Uh, but sticking with, you know, what, what Burton has to offer, again, in hindsight, we know what Burton does. As you said, there's a style, it's a signature, it's a trademark. You just see it there, you know it's Burton. I don't think failed to work, I thought. I mean, Batman is over the top. In many ways, Burton, some of what he does, I don't, if, if not over the top, then at the very least, is somewhat eccentric. And Batman, I think, you know, Bruce Wayne himself is an eccentric millionaire playboy, as has been described. In Batman, you know, he's a guy in a bat suit. That sounds eccentric enough to me. And, well, they don't get more eccentric than a Joker. So I do think it works. It Again, it's it's somewhat cohesive. So yeah, I I don't think it's too distra- uh, too distracting, and I'd argue that it worked even better. The Burtonism, if you can call it that, was worked even better in Batman Returns. Not not as a movie, Batman Returns, I should say. Not you know, not to say the entire movie was better, but strictly the Burtonism aspect, which I guess we'll touch on in a moment. Yes. Okay. So I wanna 
as we transition to this, and Sean, if you have any last thoughts on the original Batman movie, I'm going to give you a chance for that. But this is going to be a running scene because I think the Batman franchise, the, these four movies that we're talking about, two Burton, two Joel Schumacher, are a really great example of what happens to a movie when the studio is heavily involved. There are certain cases where a studio just says, you know, like Quentin Tarantino, for example, here's money, go make more of it. And they just kind of stay out of the guy's way, right? And you know that could turn out that could turn out really, really good. That could turn out really, really bad. Kevin Smith. So you know it, it happens at times. <laughs> um, in other cases, though, where they've got these properties, these are valuable properties. And make no mistake about it. Once once a company buys a property, whether it be comic books, a video game, a cartoon, etc a band, anything, once, this, once it belongs to a multi, uh, multinational corporation, their aim is to continue to make money with that property. So if they go, okay, you, go make a movie with this thing and make us gobs and gobs of money, they're not looking to make art here, though if they do, fantastic. They're looking to, ex- they're looking to squeeze as much money out of that property as possible. So they may have a lot of input. That's where I'm going with this. They may have a lot of input into what becomes of this movie. They certainly did in this Batman. In the next Batman, it was one of these. It was one of these cases of Burton's already a success. This property is a success. Here's money. Go make a movie. And unfortunately, what happens with Batman Return? turns everything on its head for the next two movies, which is, get out of the way. You, we don't like what you've done here. We, we want more money, and we want less you. So, or a little more gore, a little less Robinsky, or the other way around, as uh, Ask a Ninja nice. once said. But, um, but, let's, but, let's, but that's the next podcast. We're going to focus on this one, where the studio basically took a step back and said, here's a suitcase full of money, Tim Burton. Go make a Tim Burton movie using the Batman property. And we got Batman Returns, starring, uh, once again, Michael Keaton reprising his role, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer as one of the 56 different versions of Catwoman, and, of course, Danny DeVito in a role he was born to play, Mutant Penguin. All right, so before we get into this, any last words on the first Batman, Sean? You know, I got nothing on the first Batman, but as long as you're going to hand me the wheel, allow me to kind of set up what I think the theme of this next part of the discussion should be. I have a theory here that as to how, what really started the dominoes falling that sent this chapter of the franchise off the rail. And that is, is that if you want to blame anybody, I still say that, yes, you have to put, put some blame on Joel Schumacher. However, if you really want to blame the person who is most responsible, you have to blame Tim Burton and this movie. I will tell you why, and then we're going to get to get more specific on this, I hope. The fact is, as a, is it with this movie, this is where Tim really started to overplay his hand when it comes to taking creative liberties with established characters. I say he overplayed it in that he went absolutely, completely off the rails, off the off playbook when it comes to to what the cat to what catwoman and what the penguin really are the fact of the matter is is that if you've ever read the comic books catwoman is not a murderer she is not necessarily mean to kill anybody she's a cat burglar who steals from people who as she's put it before particularly in hush arguably my favorite batman story 
that she steals from she steals from people who have enough that they can afford to lose anyway. And I'm paraphrasing that slight that slightly. I would say and the portrayal she, of her that you see in the bat in the Dark Knight Rises is probably the closest yeah. to the actual yes, comic book character. Precisely. The Nolans and Christopher Nolan and David Goyer nailed it in that one, but she also does it to a certain degree for sport. In this, Catwoman is played flat out nuts, and it's easy to see why Sean Young maybe thought she would be perfect for this role, because yeah. Sean Young is a few fries shy of a Happy Meal. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Wikipedia, the damn movie, I'm not going to go into it anymore here. Um, so that's part of the problem with Selena Kyle. That's part of the problem with Catwoman. The Penguin was not a little mutant baby. <laughs> the Penguin was a stout, was a short, stout, comical-looking child of arguably Gotham's second most privileged family, the Cobblepots. He bore a lifelong grudge against the Wayne family for ruining his family. Quite frankly, what I think was closer to the best portrayal of the Penguin was the way he was the way he was written and stylized in Batman Arkham City and the way he was voiced by by Nolan North. He was not a pathetic little sewer dweller. In fact, he he was he was fairly stylish and fair stylish and fairly dapper. But what happened was because Burton went so cuckoo for cuckoo for cocoa puffs in creating what would become his signature overdone, overly stylized characters, he ends up going this extremely violent, gory, overly grim route with his story because he never really understood him in the first place because he was never much of a comic fan per se and not much of a real student of the series. And ultimately, that ended up being the most controversial part of the movie was how graphic the violence was, how horrifying it was to younger kids who maybe could tolerate the first Batman just fine despite how how violent that that one was. This was the one where it went over the line with the penguin biting a guy's nose off. And then, and then you went so far over the line that, yeah, you did kind of force Warner Brothers' hands and force them to say, okay, we need to go in a more colorful, family-friendly route with the next one because we just can't do this again. Otherwise, it is going to kill our franchise. Then you bring in Joel Schumacher. You get Batman Forever, which was bearable, if flawed. And then you get the all-singing, all all dancing, all holy, what the crispity crunchity cluster fuck that was Batman and Robin. And ultimately, you get the franchise having to take years off while Christopher Nolan and company just implodes the whole thing so they can do the whole thing right. So in that sense, you can trace the roots of everything going wrong clear back to Tim Burton being like a golden retriever trying to drive a Ford Taurus and having no idea what he was doing, but just doing it anyway. I want to add something to your um, to your analysis, and then we'll get Samer in on this, and that is my biggest criticism of this entire franchise, even going back to the first Batman movie, is, and you don't hear it much with the first one because the portrayals are so good, but really every single one of them did this, too much reliance on the 60s 
portrayals of the characters, namely the villains, not necessarily Batman yeah. himself, obviously, but definitely the villains. And even Jack Nicholson says, I drew from all aspects of the Joker, including Cesar Romero's portrayal. Fine, but Jack Nicholson gets a, get, gets a pass because he nails it, right? The problem I have, and, I, and I, everything you're saying is true, Sean, but I'll go a step further and say that for people who were trying to protect this brand, this property, and rescue it from the doldrums that the 60s television show put it in, for whatever reason, it was as if they didn't realize the comic book existed and that the only source material was the 60s show. So instead of Catwoman is a cat burglar, who is, uh, in, in a sense, Robin Hood, but a selfish Robin Hood as she steals from the rich and keeps for herself, uh, and she wears a cat outfit to, you know, because everyone needs a gimmick, um, right, Jack Swagger? You know, America's America. Uh, but she is not a cat person, okay? She, this, is, this is not invasion of the cat people. She does not lick herself and all this other stuff. And as you, and as you, as you were saying, even Burgess Meredith, God bless him, we loved you as Mickey, but for Christ's sakes, the penguin is a penguin because he's a short guy in a tuxedo, not because <clears throat> he was somehow crossed with penguin DNA. This isn't the fly, all right? And yet, this is the direction these movies really... I mean, they, they get away with it in the first one because Jack Nicholson's so great. But by the time they even hit the second movie, and then after this, forget about it. They're, all, they're already off the rails. <coughs> Excuse me. All everyone is doing is their best impressions of Frank Gorshin, Burgess Meredith, everybody who played Catwoman in the 60s, and... Uh, let me just admit with a small trace of guilt, I actually somewhat like Jim Carrey's performance as the Riddler in Batman Forever. All right. We have a whole podcast for me to yell at you about that. <laughs> oh, believe me, you're going to get yours too, pal. Listen, gay marriage is all the rage. Why don't you marry him and Johnny Depp while you're at it? Fuck you. <laughs> As we take this awkward transition, let me move over to, to Sam McCarty. So here we are, two film nerds, two comic book nerds, just belly aching to death about how uh, the about Tim Burton ruined Batman because he couldn't get you know get over these portrayals of these '60s characters. As you're watching these movies, what did you first of all? What did you think of Michelle Pfeiffer being the Cat Lady and uh, Danny DeVito as Mutant Penguin? Yeah, I have to say, you know, these aren't werewolves, you know? These, <laughs> they're, they're, they're not, they're well, not they... actual animals. So to yeah. see the penguin being tempted with raw fish, and I enjoy my sushi, but come on. And, <laughs> you know, to see Michelle Pfeiffer, I mean, it's fine for her to act all cat-like because, well, you know, she's Catwoman, but not to the extent that they took it, I don't think. Not with the drinking milk the way she was, not with licking herself. I mean, this is the thing. It's To me, this is a Tim Burton movie disguised as Batman. Yeah. More than anything else. And, see, I have to say, I enjoy it as a Tim Burton movie. But not as a Batman movie. You know, which is what I alluded to earlier when I said, you know, the Tim Burtonism works. In this one, you know, the first one had a nice bit of balance. There's that word again. This one, 
to me, as a Tim Burton movie, I can I can appreciate it. I I, I admit I find the whole you know the darker aspect of this movie somewhat appealing, but as a Batman movie, it just not even even forget about the comic books, forget about the source material. Let's say for argument's sake, you know very very little about. Batman, you know, take it the equivalent of a casual MMA fan watching the sport, where you're vaguely familiar with everything, but, you know, not to the whole, you know, full nerd mode. Not that there's anything wrong, not that there's anything wrong with that, mind you. I mean, after all, why are we here, all three of us? But even if you have minimal knowledge of Batman and all the characters watching it, this would still strike you as, well, that can't be right. I don't really think <laughs> Batman is fighting an actual penguin disguised right. as a human being. Nor is Catwoman really, you know, I don't think her accident turned her into an actual cat, I'm assuming. So, <laughs> to me, this Catwoman. Right. Mean, she has never once been resurrected by an army of cats and brought back to life and then given nine right. subsequent lives. So... In in watching that happen, again, as it, it, it's one thing to well, I mean, my reaction was, oh, that wacky Tim Burton, which you know can be amusing for a bit, but again, this is a Batman movie, and even though you don't have to be completely loyal to the source material and stay true to it, completely deviating the way he did is sort of, I would say, is too much of an extreme as well. I, yeah. will, I, I, will say, I will say this, though. You know, with the exception of the wonky, messed-up backstory, aesthetically, and in terms of delivery, Michelle Pfeiffer and Anne Hathaway, I think, are probably the two most intriguing people to ever play Selena Kyle, ever, to ever play Catwoman. Halle Berry. You're, you're, you're ignoring Halle Berry. Yeah, you're right. I am ignoring Halle Berry. Thanks for pointing that out, Sammer. As you should. That is yeah. uh, that is the next entry into the Bad Movie Review Club with Sean Comer and, and Jeremy Lambert, don't you know? But I'll go oh. you one better. <laughs> I'll go you one better, Sean. They could have lost Danny DeVito in this movie. They could They could have cut the penguin out entirely and just made, even with the silly origin story of Catwoman, if you wanted to go that route, though, Look, I watched plenty of James Bond movies. I, I watched the superhero movies. I've seen, you know, showgirls. I can suspend my suspension of disbelief. That's fine. But uh, you, I still have a rough time with an army of. Look, if I fall out of a ten-story building on my back and an army of cats bite me, I'm not going to wake up as you know my old cat Rhino. Okay, it's not going to happen. But oh, okay, I, I needed to say that. I got that out of my system now. That's my back credit card moment. But they could have lost Danny DeVito out of this movie entirely and just focused on the relationship between Catwoman and Batman, which which transcends the comic books, the television show, everything. There was always sort of a – I love the scenes where they don't yet realize who who the other one is. And, you know, they, they've got these injuries, and they, should, they could have stretched that out over the whole movie, you know, and they could have made Batman trying to redeem her. And there's a great line from the actual television show that I think it's Julie Newmar who uh, who says it. So I've got that. Or May, Meriwether. I don't remember which Catwoman. It's the first one. Where, uh, 
you know, he's where actually Adam West is trying to rehabilitate her, and he's like, "Come on, we can be a team. Don't do this." And um, and she's like, "You come away with me." And what about Robin? And she goes, "I've got a solution to Robin. We'll kill him." You know, <laughs> it's silly, but it it's it goes to that thing of yeah. She's the most she's the most sympathetic villain in the Batman. Uh, pantheon of villains. They could have done an entire movie based on that. No, instead they went the silly and gruesome route of Penguin wanting to murder the firstborn child of all the rich people in Gotham like he's the fucking emperor of Egypt. I mean, what what was the point of this? You know, that's and, racist. And I, say what? I'm joking. I just said that's racist, but go on. It I'm is joking. racist, Samer. I don't understand how you tolerate it all these years. Not Al Samer. This is Rodlich, not Lambert. <laughs> Oh, I'm glad you pointed that out. There will be no, there will be no soccer mockery on this show. In case you got confused between myself and Jeremy Lambert, as if you know my calling for everybody beating GSP didn't separate us two. But that's my beginning you know there. Um, no, it, it, you're absolutely right. I think the problem with with Batman Returns is that in, is that it was in fact a Tim Burton movie st- starring Batman, as opposed to a Batman movie starring Batman. And it got too gruesome, too ridiculous for its own good. But let me uh, let me ask you this: I thought the actual the best villain in this whole thing was the one who wasn't a Batman villain. I thought Shrek was. Uh, what's his face? Um, Mark Cowbell. Um, Christopher Walken. Yeah. Thank you. Christopher Walken's the best villain in the entire ba- in that entire Batman movie by far. Amazingly, amazingly, I agree. Yeah. Well, he's the only one with very minimal animal instinct, so I would have to agree as well. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. yeah, what a surprise. Christopher Walken steals the show again. <laughs> now, I felt like Keaton's portrayal of Batman in this one a little weaker than the first one. I don't think he has as much to do. They focused a lot on the Penguin, which I thought was the wrong character to focus on. And for all the wrong reasons, as all the reasons that Samer pointed out, you know, he's being treated as a circus freak and not as what he really is. And then again, it's too much focus on that. And it was kind of the same thing with Catwoman, where it was too much of a focus on her being a cat. And while her wanton acts of destruction against Shrek are fun to watch, there's not a whole lot behind them. When she's destroying the department store, I had to like go back and figure out why she was doing. Oh, it's, it's his, and his name is Shrek. Okay, got it. You know, like instead of her really focusing on their motivations, and then there's that whole subplot with the penguin becoming the mayor. Well, what you know, I, wait a second, Mark. Do you mind if I if I kind of you know tag team with Sam or something about the penguin real quick here? Sure. Uh, okay, Samers, you and I are both gamers. And right. we both enjoyed Batman Arkham City tremendously. Um, I, I want you to kind of help me elaborate on on this a little bit, on, and just tell me if you agree with this or not. You know, Christopher Nolan once said that he would never work the Penguin into any of his Batman movies because he felt like he was too cartoonish, like there was no way he could really be grounded in this darker reality that he was creating. It was my personal opinion all the way through Arkham City. And if you're if you're a gamer and you're out there and you haven't played it, shame on you unless you own a platform where it's not available. Or you have a uh, child and you don't have the time. 
Even then, you should still give it a try, I think. Yeah, and and, and really, the the main story is a pretty quick playthrough. You can get through it in in about one uneventful weekend. But anyway, um, the way Penguin is portrayed in that game as actually being astonishingly sadistic, um, actually frighteningly so, for someone, like I said, who's a squat, balding guy with the voice of Bob Hoskins. Samer, would you say that that actually would have been a more effective way to work him into a movie? Well, I I think if you want... want, What's that? Sorry? Oh, I was going to say one thing to throw in. In this game, he's not really megalomaniacal. He's basically just an arms leader and gang dealer. Or an arms dealer and a gang leader. Right. I do think... In a in a Nolan world, in a Nolan Batman world, where you know, with emphasis on quote unquote realism, or as close as it gets to realism, when you know, when it comes to a Batman movie, the interpretation of the Penguin in Batman: Arkham City, while while obviously it would require tweaking, I do think it w- it would be something that would work in a. And I, mean, I mean, at the end of the day, keep in mind, the Joker worked perfectly in The Dark Knight. And before that movie, some would have argued that he's too cartoonish. He's a man who dresses up as a clown. I mean, even watching Jack Nicholson's Joker, he did a great job at, you know, not being over-the-top cartoonish. But still, that performance wouldn't have worked in a Nolan movie, I don't think. So... So through, you know, good writing, good directing, and Heath Ledger's great performance, the Joker was able to be made into a character that works in, you know, Nolan's vision of Batman. I don't know why the Penguin wouldn't be similar. He he might be a bit harder to pull off, sure, but I don't see why not. And it's great that you mentioned, you know, the two Batman games, both Arkham Asylum and Arkham City, because... I think, you know, I'm I'm a huge fan of the Nolan trilogy, and as we're discussing, you know, I love the first Batman movie, the Tim Burton directed Batman movie as well. But even though it's really, you know, it's unfair to compare, I would say both games provide the best combination of realism and while staying true to the source material, to the comic source material of Batman. To me... If if that entire game were just a movie, if it has been nothing but cutscenes, it would work perfectly. So, if you were to tell me any character from that movie would work in a movie setting, my automatic answer would be yes. Anyway, so, but maybe I'm a bit biased. Yeah, me too. Me too, because I, quite frankly, I think those two games are the best Batman movies that have never been made. Right, that's you know you just phrase it far better than I am and with much fewer words. So yeah, <laughs> I was talking to my wife about uh, this movie. She actually, we we watched Batman Forever uh, together, but she walked in on me while I was watching uh, Batman Returns, and we actually we were kind of going back and forth about whether or not I should watch in the living room or should I watch in the bedroom, um, which revolved around where my kid was going to watch cartoons. Uh, I know that's real interesting radio, but follow me here. Um, she, so it, it brought up a discussion between the two of us, and as I said before, the seven years between us, relevance to this topic. And I was asking, I'm like, you know, you've seen all these movies. It's one of the few of franchises that that, that boys like that you've not 
slept through or missed entirely. So what's your opinion on this? And she's like, you know, I really hated Batman Returns. It was scary. It was gloomy. It was gross. I hated the Penguin. Um, I mean, I liked Michelle Pfeiffer. She was fine, but I thought the cat stuff was stupid. Um, and and it's just, you know, I liked... And then she then she would go on and tell me, I liked the next two movies because they were bright and colorful and nothing was gross. I'm like, okay. And I think that's actually kind of a nice way to sum up Batman Returns. Now, you know, if you like gross, it's fine. But I think it's just too much of a distraction from the core of the movie. Something we didn't talk about with the first movie, but is a very, very strong element in Batman lore, is what gets often lost in the interpretations of Batman, 60s being the most notorious problem with this, with it was um, Batman, you know, detective comics, right? The, the, the thing about his villains were they were all fairly intelligent. And they were all, these were, they were all setting up things for Batman to figure out. This wasn't the Hulk versus the Abomination, okay? If the Abomination walks into your city, shit gets fucked up, and you know what's happening, and everyone knows where to go and what to do. In the case of Batman, it wasn't quite so extreme. It was often very, you know, more subtle. And so, you know, that, that was always the great thing about the Riddler, wasn't it? He was leaving clues, basically, and Batman had to kind of figure out the whole puzzle in order to to get where he needed to go. Same, really the same thing with the Joker, too. The Joker would do stuff, and Batman had to kind of figure things out along the way. Um, you get none of that with this movie. It's shit happens in every scene, and Batman fights through it. It's, you know, there was more going on to me that was interesting with this movie with Batman versus the, the Red Triangle gang, you know, the gang of uh, crazy circus people, yeah, than there was yeah. anything with him having to do with the Penguin. And again, I liked all the stuff with, with Catwoman, stupid origin aside. I liked all their interactions. And I feel like if they ever do a Phantom edit of Batman Returns, just cut the shit with the Penguin out and focus on Catwoman. It's a fine, fine movie. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it, it, it would be. I would I would say that the better idea would be go ahead and keep them in there, but find a way to get another villain in there. Actually, you know... To, to kind of play armchair screenwriter for just a second, what I think really would have been the better idea, instead of introducing the Penguin, since you already had him in the previous movie, and since you could have added another side, another effective side story that might have actually been able to play in with the uh, the kind of tweener interactions, inter, uh, the kind of tweener character of Catwoman with Batman as she should be portrayed, um, do... Uh, somewhat something like Harvey Dent's origin as Two Face. Um, I oh, mean, yeah, they could have right, a scene where Billy D. Williams turns into Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> although, actually, to be perfectly honest with you, I was actually thinking about this as we were getting ready for the show. Um, the only thing about that, and again, I'm playing armchair booker, kind of picking apart my own plot here. But the only problem with that is, is as I was thinking about it leading up to this show, I thought about what Billy D. Williams would have been like as Two-Face. And I realized, <laughs> no, no, it would have never worked to have this smooth Colt 45 pimpin' player actually being a, an absolutely snapped, homicidal, disfigured district attorney. It would Air have Batman. been awesome. I don't know what you're talking about. You know what? Hey, Batman. I don't know what you're doing. Flip the coin. 
Yeah. I'm going to shoot you in your fucking back face. Yeah. <laughs> it is so easy to tell that you're a Family Guy fan, Mark. I'll just leave it at that. This totally sounded like a Seth MacFarlane bit, and I don't mean that in a bad way at all. You know, I love Family Guy as much no. as the next guy. But no, sir, he's just demonstrating that he remembers the Colt 45 malt liquor ad. Um, uh, <laughs> I remember everything about Billy D. Williams, just like I remember everything about Carl Williams. These, uh, Carl Williams? Yeah. Um, you know, the, unsung, the, fact- the unsung African-American heroes of 80s acting. You know what? The, the fact is, though, is Billy D. Williams is the Cody McKenzie, the Ronda Rousey, the Dan Henderson of of actors. He may be he may be a one trick pony. It may be a damn good trick, but in the wrong setting, he's really got nothing else if that one trick does if that one trick doesn't work. And We're going to get fact- totally torn up now on the next Man Cave podcast, okay? I can see it now. Same is going. So I was on Mark's really long, excruciating podcast, and, and Sean compared Ronda Rousey, Dan Henderson, and Cody McKenzie. I will never talk to them again. Proceed to bury them. Okay. But, but, but the thing is, is, yes, when Billy D. Williams is playing a, a, a smooth-talking con man, when he's playing Lando Calrissian, when he's trying to talk me into buying shit-tasting malt liquor... <laughs> when he's when he he's, when he's actually playing a veteran con man on white collar and having to act against uh, Matt Bomer in that in that same who's playing that kind of that same role, okay, that works. But in this case, you know, Aaron Eckhart really nailed it in the dark in the Dark Knight. I think had Tommy Lee Jones taken the goddamn scenery out of his mouth and not made an made an ass of himself. Although actually kind of fit the tone of the movie, I'm sad to say, Tommy Lee Jones could have worked as could have worked as Two Face because he's a fine enough actor. He's got that he's got that kind of range. He's got that he's got that kind of feel to him, that je ne sais quoi to him. But Billy Dee I want William, you to know, Sean, that I'm listening to you, but I've also got my brain now thinking of a whiz version of Batman, starring all black actors, including uh, including um, Billy Dee Williams as Two Face. This is not what I want to see. I want someone to do. I want someone to go like, you know, contact Soul Cinema and do an all-black version of Batman. Mark, when we were on Facebook earlier before we went on the air. <laughs> I, I know what you're doing. I warned you when you made that smart remark about how it wouldn't work if you told somebody to do a Broadway musical version of The Punisher in the style of Avenue Q. I warned you, don't go and give me ideas. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, the Wiz presents Batman. And now you've uh, actually got the wheels going, damn you. But anyway, the point that I keep trying to make is even though they introduced Billy D. Williams as Harvey Dent, and he's a fine Harvey Dent, yeah, he would have never worked it. He would have never worked as Two Face. So in a perfect world, they would have just bit the bullet, made the sacrifice, cast somebody else as Harvey Dent and Batman and made plans to make him the secondary villain opposite Catwoman in Batman Returns. But nobody really thought that far ahead. So instead, yeah, we got a horrific little fish-eating mutant baby Danny DeVito. 
versus um, intriguingly slinky, or partnering with intriguingly slinky Michelle Pfeiffer against the still kind of somewhat awkward seeming as Batman Michael Keaton. And it just it, it just doesn't come together the way Michael Keaton really came together with Jack Nicholson with that kind of chemistry in the first one. No, I really felt like Michael Keaton was just going through the motions in this one again. Instead of in, instead of being uncomfortable in his own skin in bat suit as he was in the first one, which was compelling. In this one, he's bat guy doing stuff, and bat guy doing stuff with the stuff that was happening wasn't particularly compelling to me. Um, quick question about the. I'm going to go over to Samer with this again, and then we're going to start to roll out here. Uh, the the biggest element to this movie. Um, and you can either give or take it, it's either people love it for this reason or they hate it, was the setting. The setting, the, um, the, the, the look of it, the visual effects, everything else. What did you think of, now this thing is set, set in the wintertime, it's set around Christmas, there's snow everywhere, um, you know, you've got the Red Triangle Gang, so you've got this, you, you've got the uh, creepy circus thing going on, um, so what did you think of all that, Samer? I mean, again, as a Tim Burton fan, did that work for you, or was it, again, too distracting? Uh, it's tough to say. I would say, overall, it, it was a bit too distracting. It felt like watching, even though the movie came out before them, it felt like watching a combination of Corpse Bride and Nightmare Before Christmas, albeit not an animated one. Um, I, You know... I, I I wouldn't mind a dark theme. After all, it is Batman. But the whole setting, I feel, it's like Burton almost intentionally made it. Not almost. I think he intentionally made it that way because he sort of operates better that way. It's, it's his bread and butter. He's more comfortable working in that sort of setting. And which again goes back to the point I made earlier about, and you know, which you reiterated about this being first and foremost a Burton movie disguised as Batman. I think it was just like, all right, so here's my idea, here's the setting, this is what Gotham City somehow looks like right now, and it's Christmas time, by the way, and yeah, oh, there's Batman. Right, everything so, is upstaged by the setting. The actors yeah. are upstaged. The plot is exactly. upstaged. It's like every, it's it's like it's like a a band where the drummer t- takes over everything. It's like no, you're just supposed to lay a backbeat, not be the forefront of this thing, which happens in some bands like Caliban, for example. Um, and that's I think what happens with with Burton movies is that the setting just shuts everything else out. And you know, Gotham City it definitely has a dark side, but I do I I would just have. I would find it hard to believe that this is Gotham City. You know what I mean? It was never a prospering city. Obviously, there are even even in Nolan movies, you see some of the streets, the poor streets, the ghettos. Fine, they do have this, you know, darker setting, but obviously not to that extent. This was, it was, it was almost at at some point it becomes just almost difficult to watch where you're just not at ease watching at this point. It's just too distracting. You can't focus on anything else. And it's not even in doses. You know what I mean? It's it's pretty much throughout the duration of the film in every single scene. Yeah. The one thing I do like about Batman Returns is uh, when Michelle Pfeiffer goes to light up the mall and... Uh, 
I don't like the fact that she walks in and um, flips, mind you. I thought that was stupid. But the one time she does it where it looks super cool, and I remember actually HBO's first look talking about how it took her multiple times to get this right, uh, to the point where like she gets it right because by the time she does it, she's exhausted. But she, you know, the uh, she walks out of Shrek's. She does all these. She flips. She flips. She flips. She flips. She's in the frame, and she just goes meow, you know, with that snarl, and then the place blows up. Yeah. It's 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 like you know we were talking about in the last podcast. It's the Mariachi and uh, Selma Hayek walking away from uh, you know from blowing up something blowing up. It's a meme, but it was a well done meme, and it was probably one of the best shots in the entire movie. I would agree. We are. This is the first part of a uh, two-part series on the Batmans, and we kind of wanted to handle Burton in its own package and then Schumacher films in their own package. But I think this is one of the first ones we've done where, you know, the typical arc for a lot of franchises is first one's good, second one's awesome, everything else after that crashes and burns to one level or another. And this is the first one that I think that we've done where it never gets any better than the first one. You know, it, it, from the second one on, they just go get worse and worse and worse, unless you're a child or my wife, in which case, what, you know, I guess because it has bright colors and Jim Carrey, it's better. I don't know. I don't get I don't get it. But we can talk about that in two weeks. Um, but the last thing I'm going to say is, and we're going to keep coming back to this theme, is this is what happens when a studio has a huge vote, and sometimes you just can't fight it. It is what it is. has a huge vote in how a movie gets made. And I'm going to end with this one last point. This is what I said to Sean offline. You know, I, I, you know, he said it before. I said, if you, if I ask you to make a movie about the Punisher, but then tell you it's got to be a Broadway musical, and then tell you I want you to do it like I have a new cue, it's not Sean's fault. It sucks. It's mine for being stupid and asking something of you know that's him that's impossible. You know, if I ask you to make Homer's car, then it's my fault for not having any ability to edit. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's what this franchise suffers from an ability for anybody to look at what they were doing at any time and edit themselves and realize what they were dealing with. This is this is a great precursor to what would eventually become The Phantom Menace in another life. And I will leave us with that thought here. As I go over to Samer and say, Samer, what do you want to promote tonight? Oh, actually, it's been quite a busy week for me. We recorded UFC on FX, or was it on Fuel, whatever, preview last night with Jeremy, and won't come out until Thursday. Everybody would be relieved to hear that we broke down two fights for the main events, two possible fights, and there are Gagarin Musasi against Alexander Gustafsson, and Gagarin Musasi against Vanderlei Silva, just in case, as luck would have it, neither fight is actually taking place, so we didn't <laughs> break down the main event. That's good. Um, that, Tomorrow night, um, Jeremy Lambert, Larry Zonka, and I will be recording a WrestleMania preview. So there's that exciting stuff. WrestleMania, one of the most exciting times for the year for any nostalgic wrestling fan or anybody who actually watches wrestling still. It's pretty much the only wrestling event I order per year just out of pure habit, I guess. It doesn't feel right if you don't watch Mania. So That's how I do. I really don't want to order this thing, but I almost feel like a religious person who skips church if I don't. So I'm going to order it for two reasons. One, because I, I feel like I'm compelled to, and two, the shield. And yeah. Vince McMahon will kill you if you don't. <laughs> that, that's entirely possible. 
Just like what are you going to talk about your podcast? Are you, are you going to be like me and talk about how the writing staff couldn't write their way out of a wet paper bag? I have no idea. I mean, we recorded one last year, actually. But last year, I was I was more familiar with what was going on because The Rock had just come back, and I was like, well, you know, it's The Rock, so I might as well tune in a few times. This year, I'm completely clueless. I've tried to catch up. I'm going to finish catching up tomorrow before we record the podcast. But I'm completely clueless. I just feel it's going to be a novel idea to be on a podcast with Jeremy in which he knows more about the topic at hand than I do. But let's face it, this is going to be Larry Zonka's playing field, and Jeremy and I are just going to sit back and listen to him talk about wrestling, which is always fascinating. So, yeah, it's essentially an excuse for Jeremy, myself, and Larry Zonka to just, you know, talk about shit, I guess. What's, uh, what's in the throne this week? Oh, well, that's an even better story, even better than the breaking down to main events that never take place. Well, Jeremy and I had had two columns lined up for potential, you know, injuries and whatnot after news that Alexander Gustafson might pull out of the fight. Um, later, uh, actually not later, uh, well, at some point this afternoon, we saw that, you know, no news of Gustafson pulling out. Looks like the fight will take away. So we proceeded with our initial plan, which is just to talk about this weekend's um, main event and the state of light heavyweight division, especially in case Alexander Gustafson wins. And as we're three quarters... Um, or maybe midway through our column, I don't want to exaggerate, Jeremy texts me and says, guess what, Gustafson's out of the fight. So now we're out of ideas, and the deadline is on Thursday, and we have no idea what to talk about, so Why all the better. Why don't you break down Queen Latifah versus Gagard Mousasi? <laughs> <laughs> because as funny as that would be, I have no idea what to say, really. <laughs> I would think it, you know. Actually, your entire you just say here's my preview of Queen Latifah. Do the whole card, but then end with Gegard Musasi, the Gegard Musasi fight, and just say here's my preview of uh, of whatever this guy's name is versus Gegard Musasi, and just put in the video for uh, Unity by Queen Latifah. I mean, it's going to be more entertaining than the fight than the fight itself, I might say. Although I encourage everybody, shameless plug, tune in at least for the first thirty minutes of my podcast with Jeremy because the first 30 minutes and I'm completely biased here but are absolutely hilarious I laughed my ass off doing it I've never laughed that hard on a podcast uh, with Jeremy it was it, we, we just you know uh, a little teaser there we started pondering the the Oh, the possibilities of a triple threat match between Vanderlei Silva, Alexander Gustafsson, and Gegard Mousasi, and I proceeded to seriously break down the fight as if it was going down as a triple threat match. Yes, I broke down a triple threat MMA match. <laughs> and this is why no one should compare Thoughts from the Man Cave MMA podcast to the 411 Ground and Pound podcast. Two completely different shows, because I'm fairly certain if I even attempted to go down that road, Jeff would have an epileptic seizure, and then him and Pat would start cursing at one another, and I'd have to mute them, mute them both. So, see, two completely different shows. See, you belong on the Mad Cave, because Jeremy has never met a wacky suggestion he didn't like, and after two, almost two years of doing this with you, neither do you, so it's a perfect fit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeremy has not yet invited me back into the man cave. I tried once. He, he he said not 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 yet not not in this lifetime. So I have not been asked back. Don't know why, but I haven't, and that's fine. I'm going to remedy that. Yeah, I'll absolutely <laughs> remedy that. 
<laughs> well, thanks. Thank you for fighting my battles for me. Samer, it was an absolute joy and pleasure to have you on here. We'll, we'll be glad to have you back in two weeks for part two of this podcast. Sean, do your thing, brother. Tell us where we can find you at. Folks, first and foremost, as I tell everybody right about this time every two weeks, never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. Uh, with that in mind, please get over to Twitter and follow the account of my new online business, Canvas Content. Please visit us for all of your business's web content needs at C-A-N-V-A-S-C-O-N-T-E-N-T. Um, now, actually, it's funny you actually mentioned Jeremy so much because really, I don't know if he listens to the show or not, but Jeremy, I really got to get back in touch with you so we can get Bad Movie Review Club back on track. Um, I had been putting so much time into launching my business that uh, it fell by the wayside for a little bit. We never did get around to doing the review of The Room, and that is going to be, when we get it rescheduled, the first one we do when it comes back. Um, so, Jeremy... I'll be in touch very soon if you're listening, man. Um, elsewhere, every Sunday, of course, you can find me being the ringmaster of Music's Three R's. Uh, the last couple of weeks, it's been a very little Wayne-heavy edition, um, including last week, my actually introducing the phrase, oh, Anne Hathaway's grumpy vagina. Um <laughs> You know, I was going to make a comment about you ruining the education and SAT scores of America's youth by mentioning this month's Little Wayne, but I'll forgive you for Anne Hathaway's Grumpy Vagina, read, which is read the name the of my new band, by the way. Read, read the column, because Wayne pretty much takes up the entire ridiculous. doesn't pretty much take it up. He does take up the entire ridiculous. Anyway, uh, in addition, this week coming up, I believe this Friday, uh, Stay tuned for a special feature interview that I did for 411 Mania with the cult bassist, Chris Wise, talking about his musical philosophies and also about the upcoming album Hitting Shelves April 9th from his other band, Owl. So look for that very intriguing in-depth interview with a very smart, very engaging, very funny guy. Um, in addition, obviously, two weeks from now, we have got the yuck years of Batman. Um, seems like I'm forgetting to mention something. Oh, uh, stay tuned to the end of future podcasts because I'm actually going to be making a comeback to gaming writing very, very soon. I've got some projects in mind that are going to get me back to that wonderful passion of mine. Um, I've tremendously missed doing it over the last, um, God, has it really been almost 12 months exactly that I have been getting settled in here in the Grand Canyon State. But I'm good now. I'm all set, and I'm ready to get back to something else that I love. And, oh, in the meantime, since I'm out of things to plug for myself, uh, please, if you get some time, get over to either Blip TV or thatguywiththeglasses.com and check out the two series by my good friend and fellow Arizonan, Allison Pregler, um, on Obscure's Lupa Presents, she's right in the midst of covering all, goddamn, 13 witchcraft movies. Uh, most recently, she did Witchcraft 5 with Shameful Sequels host Mike J. It was a hilarious little collaboration between those two. And on Manic Episodes, she is also doing a full retrospective of all eight seasons of Charmed. 
Uh, she's gone up through season three, which was a hilarious two-parter. So please go support a very funny, very talented, very wonderful young lady and uh, just help her make a good living because sometimes the good guys need to win. All right. Uh, every Sunday night at 9 o'clock is the 401 Ground and Pound radio show. We are having a show this Sunday night at 9 o'clock during WrestleMania, so order the show, settle in, watch the shitty matches that will be on for the first hour that nobody cares about, except for maybe Chris Jericho versus Fandingo or whatever his name is. Um, I mean, that match will probably be some fine, fine wrestling, which I'm sure you're going to have to watch with the sound off. And then you should keep the sound off at 9 o'clock and tune in to the 401 Ground Pound radio show as we'll be reviewing uh, Gegard Mousasi versus Decoy the Pig Hostage. It'll be fantastic. I will be doing live coverage of Gegard Mousasi versus Decoy the Pig Hostage and everything else on the UFC Sweden 2 Electric Boogaloo card. Uh, so tune in at 12 o'clock on Saturday for UFC on Fuel 9, UFC Sweden 2, UFC Gegard Mousasi versus Decoy, the pig hostage. Uh, you can, uh, what was that? No, no, I'm sorry. The Tiny Toons reference is never going to stop making, stop making me laugh. I do try. Um, if you go into the Wayback Machine on uh, in the... the 401 Movie Zone, in case you missed it. Please check out our previous Long Road to Ruins. We've done Spider-Man. We've done the El Mariachi trilogy. We did a special uh, Return of the Jedi versus Revenge of the Sith. We did uh, a two-parter focusing on the Paranormal Activity franchise with special guest Sandy Eagle, Mr. Robert Winfrey. Uh, go ahead and check out the Music Zone, where we just broke after a month hiatus because I was on my cruise and all that. We just came back. We did a career retrospective of the greatest band nobody's ever heard of, which is Clutch from Baltimore, Maryland. And in BMO, we aim to kill a nigger. You heard? Uh, that's from The Wire, everybody. Don't think I'm racist. I just love that line from The Wire. Um, Baltimore, Maryland, folks. Clutch, check them out. Some of the, beta, some of the greatest rock music you're ever going to hear in your life. We did a career retrospective of that. A week from tonight... Check out the 401 Music Zone again for our part two of The Clutch, where we're going to review the new album by Clutch came out in the middle of March called Earth Rocker. Uh, if you've been listening to my podcast lately, you know I've been playing a little bit of, of Clutch's DC sound attack from that album. So please go ahead and check that out. And then uh, two weeks after that, we'll be delving into the land of Finnish folk metal. Yes. Fin Troll. They've got a new album out, which you can check out on Spotify. We're going to break that da- that album down as well. So that's all the podcasts we got going on. All right. Um, and then come back in two weeks here in the Movie Zone, where we will be reviewing uh, Batman Forever and, of course, Batman and Robin, or as we call them, the Yuck Years. All right, so for our very special guest, Sam Mercati, who'll be back with us again in two weeks, for my co-host and good friend, Sean Comer, this has been The Long Road to Ruin. I am, of course, the Mandate Reporter. Be well, be safe, and behave.